Now take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're in a series called Aggressive About Sanctification. Said another way, it's being aggressive about our holiness. Being serious about becoming more like Jesus. Being conformed to his image, which means fundamental change in who we are and in what we're like. We find ourselves in Romans 6. And I have to just confess something that I, before we even start, I, I really thought we were going to start getting some traction and moving a lot faster in Romans 6. And I got one verse into the three verses we were going to cover this morning. And I hope we can cover that one today. So we'll see. There's just so many applications and implications of this rich section. This is where Paul begins to turn the screws from the heavily theological emphasis in the first part of the book to now the so what. And we'll be looking specifically at verses 12 to 14 this morning, but I want to pick up, get a running start and go back to verse 8. Paul summarizes what he's been saying in the first part of the chapter by saying this. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For since the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments, instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. One of the more sobering parts of being a pastor is, is the nearness that ministry brings you to death. Death means funerals. Funerals typically mean pastors. And being around the ministry means that you are ever and almost always acquainted with people who are dead or dying. There's lots of ways that people die. Some quickly, some slowly. I've been acquainted with lots of kinds of deaths. Some that have happened all of a sudden with no warning at all. Some that take years It's always the case that when someone dies, there's a degree of sadness, degree of negativity, degree of angst. And that's natural. Death is the great evil to the human condition that the gospel solves and changes perspective about. But having said all of that negative about death, having the... The constant experience of a negative response and intuitive reflex of our soul to death. There is a positive side of the notion of death. I'm not talking about going to heaven. There's a way that death is supposed to be understood and employed for our benefit. And I'm not talking about physical death. 
There's a kind of death that should not be negative at all. In fact, it's a kind of killing that you and I should be engaged in every moment of every day. Flip the page for a moment to Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Romans 8, verse 13. We'll get here eventually, but this is the precursor to what we're going to study in Romans 8. Paul says in verse 13, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit, here it is, you are putting to death, you're killing the deeds of the body. And that causes life. You will live. Putting the deeds of the body to death is a doctrine in Christian theology called the doctrine of mortification. Self-killing. Killing sin in your life. Killing sin in your mind. Killing sin, as he'll say in a few minutes, in your members, in your body. Being deliberate about self-destruction related to the sin that resides in us all. We said over and over uh, in, in our study that but books are wonderful. I love reading. I love reading books. But books don't typically change your life. Paragraphs do. And you've got to read the whole book to find the paragraph. And I wish it was the same paragraph for everyone. We would just have one person read the whole book and give us the paragraph. But it's not always the same. Well, in his great uh, tome on sin and temptation, John Owen has this little few sentences, this little paragraph that have been ever life-changing to me. He says, do you mortify? In other words, do you kill sin in your life? Do you mortify, Owen says? Do you make it your daily work? You always must be at it while you live. Do not take a single day off from this work, this work of mortification. Then he says this. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. The question that this text brings up and the question that it answers is that issue. First of all, do you believe that? Do you believe that one of your life's goals ought to be the mortification of something inside you? The killing, the death of something inside you. Do you believe that you have to put, you ought to put, you get to put enormous action, activity, and effort into the slaying of certain parts of your thinking. Certain parts of your activity. Certain parts of your actions. Well, I kind of mapped it out a bit, and it's going to be over the next probably two years, we're going to be studying this issue of mortification. Paul starts in the middle of chapter 5, actually he starts at the beginning of chapter 5, and all the way through the end of chapter 8, and then picking up again in chapter 12, he deals strategically and almost exclusively with the Christian's command, the Christian's duty to mortification, to killing sin in our lives. There are three parts of salvation. You know them. You probably could take a test on them very well. There's justification, being made right with God, being declared righteous before God because of the death of God's Son, because of the imputation that He gives us from Christ to us and the death uh, that He died for us, taking our sin away. Imputation, that's the doctrine of justification. And then there's the doctrine of glorification, which is going to heaven. More often than not, we connect those two with relative ease. In fact, some of our evangelistic uh, um, efforts are connecting those two with, with nothing in between. Do you want to have your sins forgiven? 
Who would say no to that? Do you want to go to heaven? I've never heard anyone say no to that. Well, that's great. Then believe Jesus and you're saved. That sounds simple enough. The problem is there are only a handful of verses about justification. And even less about glorification. And almost the entire New Testament after the book of Acts is written specifically about that middle one, which is what? Sanctification. Becoming holy. The doctrine of sanctification is the doctrine of mortification. It's the doctrine of dealing with our sin. Sanctification just simply means becoming holy. Becoming conformed to the image of Christ. It's the part of salvation I think that's most ignored in our day and sometimes in our lives. And yet, that's what we're instructed most about in the New Testament. More about sanctification than anything else. And that makes sense. Justification happened to us and we should reflect on that and glory in that and revel in that. Uh, Glorification isn't here yet. We're not in heaven. We're left with our entire life wrestling with and pursuing sanctification. Let me say it this way. If you're serious about your love for God, if you're serious about your growth as a believer, sanctification or your pursuit of holiness ought to be a steady and constant concentration in your life. Holiness should be one of your first thoughts when you wake up. How do I want to orient my day best so that holiness is my goal? Holiness is my protocol. Holiness is the, is the connective tissue between all my relationships. Holiness is what I desire most of all. And it ought to be the way that we, we evaluate our day when we pillow our head at night. What, am I going to bed more sanctified than when I woke up this morning? The Lord's table is ultimately a sanctifying ordinance, is it not? Let a man examine himself when he takes the Lord's table. Which is another way of of saying stop to see if you're holy. Stop to see if we're becoming sanctified. Stop to see if we are pursuing that sanctification. How, How important is sanctification? Turn over, I want you to see this. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. There's a verse that you ought to know. Underline, highlight, star, whatever you do in your Bible. This is one that you want to have acquaintance with. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, specifically verse 14, but I'm going to read through verse 17. The writer says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, our holiness. Look at this. Without which no one will see the Lord. How important is sanctification? There's no such thing as an unsanctified, saved person. Now, does that mean you're holy and and done? No, no. It means that you're pursuing sanctification. He goes on, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. He goes back to our justification. See to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it may defile. Even the simple act in our heart of bitterness... Is unholy and unsanctified. That there be no immoral or godless person. Then he gives an illustration like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. He saw the things of this world as more important than his own holiness and sanctification, than his own pleasure before the Lord. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. 
That's an illustration that basically says there will be some who get to the judgment and realize that even though they had said, Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we in your name? Jesus will say to them at that point, depart from me into everlasting darkness, you who work lawlessness. In other words, though you thought you knew me, they are so self-deceived, they get all the way to the judgment Without any pursuit of sanctification, even having done things in the name of Jesus, and yet weren't redeemed. Look at that verse. Pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Doesn't, aren't you glad it doesn't say become totally sanctified? It says pursue sanctification. The issue isn't perfection in holiness. It's progress in holiness. Nothing will impact your life like your pursuit of sanctification. Sanctification, And nothing will show up in a Christian's life more than a lack of attention to sanctification. If we're serious about sanctification, lives will change. Care groups will change. Our church will change. Our evangelism will be shaped by it. Our love and burden for Kansas City will change. Our selfishness will melt and we will be happier. Holy people are happy people. Unholy people are plagued by unhappiness. Because happiness comes from the pleasure of God. From knowing that he is saying well done in our pursuit of sanctification. Happiness doesn't come in getting more and accomplishing more. So back to Romans chapter 6. Paul's been talking about justification for the better part of five chapters. And now in chapter 6, everything changes and he becomes intensely practical. I want us to dissect the next three verses, Romans 6, 12 to 14. But I want to tell you that we're we're not going to get any further than verse 12 today. What we're specifically going to look like, are, look at are three actions for this principle of mortifying sin. Three actions for mortifying sin. He begins this idea here. He's going to finish it up in chapter 8. He's going to then talk about Israel in chapters 9 through 11 and come back and pick it up again in chapter 12. Three actions for mortifying sin. We're only going to get to number one today. The first action is passionate dethroning. Passionate dethroning. In other words, being active about taking something off a throne, specifically in our life. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin rule or reign. Let it sit on the throne in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Quite a verse, isn't it? I think you'll understand why we can't go any further than this one today. One of the most important words to note in the Bible is the word therefore. There's the old saying, when you see therefore, ask what is it therefore. It's a great thing to think through. It's almost like an equal sign in mathematics. Everything on the left of that uh, equation uh, has an equal sign that gives you the answer on the right. An equation by nature is equation. You want to see the the two sides of the equal sign uh, balanced and equal. I I hated math. I shouldn't say this in front of my sons, but math was just, 
I did it. I, uh, in fact, I got to statistics in college. Statistics almost unilaterally derailed my college education because basically math was hard enough and statistics said everything you learned about math doesn't matter anymore. We're just going to kind of guess. At least that's my summation of statistics. <laughs> but I always was frustrated in math with those ridiculous books that give you the answer in the back. I mean, what kind of teacher is that? They give you all the answers, so you go to the back, you get the answer, then you work this elaborate calculus problem, and you hope to get this answer, and you've got a whole page of stuff, and the answer doesn't work, and then your job is to go back and figure out which line you messed up on. Somehow that's called education. Again, sons, don't listen to me now. This equation here, this therefore here, this equal sign here, is not complicated calculus. It is very simple. This is one plus one equals two theology. Namely, our understanding of the facts and theology of the gospel. Facts plus theology equals sanctification. It equals a certain kind of living. Living that's different than our old lives. So when we come to these therefores in the Bible, it's super important to take into account what has come before. And we go back, look at verse 12. Excuse me, look at verse 11. So even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Pretty simple. That's the conclusion of the first 11 verses. Now, interestingly, verse 12 sounds an awful lot like it, but begins to be specific and it has an imperative in it. Therefore, based on the fact that you're to consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its lusts. He's been talking about solidarity since chapter 5. We are unified in solidarity with Adam because we sin because Adam sinned. We die because sin brings death. We're unified with Christ in that he died for us. He imputes righteousness to us. He offers us life because of his resurrection. He has been flooding us with theology for five and a half chapters. And now he comes to tell us what to do with that theology. This verse is incredibly simple to understand, but traumatic to apply. Now, I took you back to math class for a second. Let me take you back to English for a second. Remember English class and all those tenses and moods and voices of verbs? You may or not, may not remember that verbs have moods. I'm not talking about happy or sad. They have moods in how they communicate. The mood of a verb shows the manner in which the assertion of the verb is made. Now, in Greek, there are four moods, properly called so. There's the indicative mood, that's a stative, the subjunctive, the optative, and the imperative. The only one I want you to think about now is the imperative. The imperative is a command. The imperative is telling someone to do something. Now, Paul has been very slim with imperatives so far in the book of Romans. Now, he is going to hit us with staccato imperatives. There are three in these, two, in these three verses. He tells us exactly what to do. So when Paul says, do this, uh, there are some verses that are hard to apply, not the ones that have imperatives. And this is one of the most penetrating imperatives in the entire New Testament. 
He tells us something we are to do, something we must do. It's a command to obey. It's an imperative mood. Paul is telling us, here's so what. Here's what to do. Said another way, find the imperatives in the Bible and you'll find a very clear path to sanctification. When God says, do this, that's a clear path toward holiness. When God says, don't do that, that's a clear path around that on our way to holiness. He's already been speaking of of the metaphor between uh, reigning and ruling. And now he uses an imperative to nail that down. This imperative is a basilio in the Greek. And it means literally, do not let something reign. Don't let it be master or king or lord. Let's look at that metaphor he's been employing. Reigning and ruling. We already learned in chapter 5 that death reigns in this life. Does it not? The current death rate is still 100%. Death reigns. Death reigns because sin abounds. But then he says grace reigns. Grace rules through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us through faith. Which makes one think, well, if, if sin is atoned for, if If death is taken care of in the resurrection, if grace now reigns and sin is no longer on my account, I can sin all I want because grace covers that. And he answers that question in the first part of chapter 6. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Should we go on sinning that grace would increase and may it never be? May that never ever happen in our lives that we presume on God's grace. Now, that metaphor is going to be closely related to one he's going to use in the rest of the chapter, which is that of a master and a slave. And he's going to talk about this in great detail. That everyone is born, if I can steal from where we're going to go here in a few weeks, everyone is born a slave to a master called sin. And in the gospel, we trade masters. We are no longer slaves to sin. We become slaves to righteousness. This is the beginning of that. This is where Paul tells us to sever our ties to sin. Become sanctified. Therefore, do not let sin rule and reign In your mortal body. What does this mean? There's been a great debate over the centuries and really over the millennia about sanctification. And in recent years, actually in recent months, actually in recent weeks, actually even posted on some blogs yesterday. There is a raging debate over what sanctification means for us today. Now... I only tell you this because you may see or read things about this. I want to give you a little bit of insight into this current debate that's just, it's interesting. The debate about sanctification is revealing very unsanctified approaches. Here's how the current debate is framed. And as I said, it's been raging for centuries. It's just framed itself a little differently today. Because of the threat and the fear of legalism, people are so afraid to say, do this or don't do that because they think that will undermine grace. If I tell you what to do, then grace is undermined, God's forgiven us, and so we want to make sure we don't become legalistic. Now, we use the term legalistic a lot, and probably we use it in the wrong way. 
A lot of times we use legalistic for, for Christian liberties. Well, he does that or doesn't do that because he's legalistic. She does this or doesn't do that because they're legalistic. That's not really what's going on. We typically use legalism as a way to talk about how someone's trying to be sanctified. In the biblical sense, legalism is an attempt to be saved or justified by certain works. There's such a fear of not wanting to undermine grace and to not be legalistic to think that you have to be saved by works that some have gone overboard with the emphasis on grace in what's called free grace sanctification. Because of the threat of that legalism, people have called us back to remembering that grace is free, that there's nothing we can do to earn God's kindness and favor. That sounds good enough so far, right? I would agree with that. But the problem comes when the focus is so much on justification, on forgiveness, on grace, that grace creates a passivity in our, in our conscience, a passivity in our pursuit of sanctification. You ever heard this? This is the way it was framed 30 years ago. Let go and let God. What does that mean? Let go of what and let God do what? I, I mean, I think there was probably some benevolent ideas behind that. But I, I, what does that even mean? Well, that was kind of beaten up for a while, but it's come back in another phrase, another uh, phase. There's a current book that's been written on, that, on this. I want you to hear the subtle nuance. I'm going to give you three quotes from this book. It's one of the best sellers in Christianity right now. This author says this. The hard work of Christian growth. No. What would you expect him to say after that? The hard work of Christian growth, therefore, is to think less of ourselves. Sanctification is the daily hard work of going back to the reality of our justification. Now, there are truths in in, in what that's saying, but what he's saying is... The hard work of sanctification is remembering that we're saved. Well, that's a sliver of it. But how does that sound compared to this? Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey his lusts. That sounds a little more aggressive and a little more active, doesn't it? Author goes on. Our hard work, therefore, means coming to a greater understanding of his work. When we succumb to temptation, we are failing to believe. And in that moment that everything... In that moment that we have everything we need, in Christ, we already have all, basically. So, so, so what is he saying? It sound, it's subtle. He's saying, it's just about thinking. It's about thinking. I'll give you one more. What the licentious people need is a greater understanding of grace. Now, I'm all for thinking rightly. Proper biblical meditation and contemplation should be at the core. We should remember our justification. We come to communion. We come to church. We sing songs remembering the cross. Amen and amen. We should always remember what God has done for us in justification. But we got to go beyond remembering. We got to go beyond meditation. We have to go beyond contemplation. The verse before us clearly says that thinking is not enough. It must translate into aggressive, traumatic, mortifying action. Look at the verse again. Just read it at face value. Therefore, 
Do not let, that sounds pretty active, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. That's, not, that's far more than just thinking about its lusts. This is obeying its lusts, its desires. And that command is built on verse 11. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That thinking in verse 11 leads to action in verse 12. The old self has been crucified with Christ. We've read in the first 10 verses. This is talking about the previous lifestyle that we had. Our previous lifestyle as unbelievers should be identified and mortified and crucified and laid aside. Paul's pressing the point here so that we would ask, how can I possibly, think about this, how can I allow sin to rule and reign over my thoughts and actions when Christ has already broken sin's reign by his death? Remember the words of John Owen we read earlier? Listen to them again. Do you mortify? Do you kill sin in your life, he says? Do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live. Do not take one day off from this work. Always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Listen to his next sentence after that famous quote. Your position is... In Christ and the new life you have in Him does not excuse you from this work. In other words, just thinking about all we have in Christ doesn't excuse you from the hard work of killing sin in your heart and in your life. Now, you have to be asking by now, what what does that mean? How do you kill sin? He gives us a hint, and we'll finish this in our next study. He gives us a hint in the next phrase. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lust. There's two phrases there that are important. Mortal bodies. What he's talking about there is our present bodies that are subject to death. That's what he's been talking about since chapter 5. The ones that are going to die are physical bodies. But now footnote, you have to be careful to be, not to become a Platonist or a Neoplatonist. You know what they said? Well, the body is bad. The soul is good. Whatever you do in the body doesn't matter because you can't help it. Whatever you do in the soul is right. And that came over into what's called Neoplatonism in early Christianity where some people said, well, it's just, it's just, just what I think. It's just where my heart is. It doesn't matter what I do. Ask the people you've hurt if it matters what you do. We never have an excuse from taking even a day off from being aggressive about becoming holy, about dethroning sin. Now, here's what we have to understand. We never put sin on the throne. How did it get there? We were born with sin on the throne. How many times do we say, you don't teach a two-year-old how to disobey? They come about that very naturally. Now he gives us another instant that you obey its lusts. This is the locus of temptation. This is where everything comes into play. Our mortal bodies have unique lusts. It just means strong desire. The the Greek word is epithemia. It just means strong desire. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 1 to have lust, have a strong desire, epithemia for God. That we obey our bodies, our 
unredeemed humanness that we obey its desires, its strong desires. All of your natural inclinations and desires work against God's commands and God's word. And the most subtle kind are those that make us think that what we're doing is right and righteous when it's not pleasing to God. And that's ultimately going to lead us away from him, even though it looks moral, than it does leading us to him. Epithemia, strong desires, lust. Remember Romans eight thirteen again. Are you putting to death the deeds of the, what does it say? Body. Are you putting to death the deeds of the body. That's a lot more than just thinking. This whole idea that you just sit in the corner and meditate and contemplate your spiritual navel doesn't cause you to fight lust and to fight gossip and envy and jealousy. Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. So there it is. All that we're doing in our natural inclinations is idolatrous. Romans 1 told us that, right? We exchange the truth of God for an idol, for a lie that's in an idol. Meaning our natural inclinations lead us to worship and want anything and everything that is not God and that is contrary to God. That should lead to such a fundamental distrust of your own heart. Don't trust yourself. Be able to look in the mirror and say, you are a wicked, deceptive, conniving sinner saved by grace with the empowering of the Holy Spirit to dethrone that awful man. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts He just adds this little footnote, which wages war against your soul. There is a war waging and raging in all of our souls that is between our bodily lustful desires and holiness. So if you claim to know the Savior this morning and you know nothing of this battle, that's a serious problem. There is a sense in which the Christian always has a level of holy discontent. There's never a day that goes by where we say, man, do we ever say, I should say, great day, holy, stamp that one, put it in the books, can't wait for God to review that one. There's never a day that's like that. But there's never a day that looking at what we have done that failed God, there's never a day that God hasn't said, I died for that. My son was crucified on a cross to pay for that. Now do you see where thinking about justification becomes a motive for holy living, not a motive for, for legalism? Let me ask you a few questions. Do you find yourself battling and hating particular sins in your life? When's the last time you wept over a sin? When's the last time you did something or said something and walked away And literally hated yourself for good and righteous and holy reasons. Does the alarm that God has rightfully set in your conscience work? Or do you know very carefully where the snooze is on that conscientious alarm? Are there virtues that you desire? 
that sometimes seem out of your reach? In other words, have you believed Satan's lie where he whispers in our lie into our ear, you will never beat this sin. You will never be holy. This is your besetting sin. Get used to it. Christ died for it. Don't worry about it. Do you see evidences of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, things like these. What's the takeaway? Look at Galatians 5 for a minute. Paul is about to introduce our fight with and against sin. And as he does that, he's going to set up, especially in chapter 8, this tension between our flesh and the Spirit of God. He says in verse 16, you know this really well. If you walk by the Spirit... You'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh, that's our mortal bodies that he just talked about in Romans 6. Our flesh sets its desire against the spirit. Do you understand that there's a fight already waging? There's a war already on the battlefield in your soul. They're fighting against one another. And the spirit fighting against the flesh. They're in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. What is he saying? The things that your flesh desires to do, you can't do those. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. These of the flesh are evident. Now we find out a little checklist. Are we living according to our old sinful ways, which God will tell us in verse, chapter 6, verse 13 and 14, that we're not to to, uh, render ourselves even accessible to. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sexual immorality is sexual immorality done with the body. Impurity is sexual immorality done in the mind. Sensuality. Another expression of, of that. Idolatry. Sorcery, and we would say, huh, we don't, I'm, I don't do any sorcery, really. Do you believe in anything that has power other than God in your life? Enmities, that's having um, enemies and people you just won't reconcile with. Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. And then I love this little phrase, and things like these. It's not a complete list. Of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's another way of saying they're not saved. And then he goes on, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against things like this, there's no law. Now those, look at verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and lusts. The 
question that we have to answer this morning is not have we already done that. The question is are we in the fight doing that? Are we becoming sanctified? Can you identify specific sins that you need to target and ask God for sanctifying grace? Here's what's remarkable in my own life, a failure that I have in my sanctifying uh, pursuit. I kind of tend to read the Bible and I'll fight and read the Bible and I'll fight. and, And then finally you wake up and you say, I don't think I've asked God in recent hours or days for help in this. Do, do, you, do you not think that if we cry out to God and say, help me with this sin, that he's going to fold his arms and begrudgingly say, no, nah, I, got, I got to worry about the Middle East right now. God rushes to answer sanctifying prayers. Do you recognize your tendency to minimize the seriousness and gravity of these sins, our hearts, our wicked, lying, deceitful hearts continue to listen to the enemy and whisper into our conscience and in our soul. It's not that big a deal. Everybody does it. You've been forgiven. Don't worry about it. Or are you trying to crucify and mortify? How about I answer this question? Are you actively giving particular sins rule and reign over your life? This text tells us dethrone that sin. Dethrone sin. Are you allowing sins to sit on that throne? Envy, jealousy, bitterness. How about laziness? Sexual lust, ambition, a critical spirit. Gluttony, gossip, a lack of interest in spiritual disciplines, lying, materialism, spending, outbursts of anger. We could go on for the rest of the afternoon with that list, couldn't we? What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with? What are you trying to crucify? What are you attempting to mortify in your life You cannot be passive. If so, sin will reign on the throne of your life. And if it reigns in an unmitigating way, if it reigns unchecked, Galatians just told us, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. How serious is sanctification? Without sanctification, you won't see the Lord. You won't go to heaven. I have to say it again. We're not talking about perfection, but progress. We're not talking about no sin, but softness to sin. I love 1 John. He says, if we we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he says right before that, if we say we have no sin, we call God a liar. You're going to sin. As long as we're in this unredeemed humanness, this flesh, we're going to sin. The question is, do you hate it? Are you soft about it? Are you correctable? Are we confrontable? Is this something that we're aggressive and serious about? Are we just being passive and saying, this is just the way I am? Sin's tyranny has been broken. You don't have to sin. You have all the resources of the power 
of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that kind of power that can make you say no to sin, yes to righteousness, and dethrone its power in your life. We are free to choose not to sin. But it's a series of choices we make constantly and continually. Let me ask you again what Dr. Owen asked. Are you killing sin or is sin killing you? The gospel is three parts. Facts about the Lord Jesus Christ. Theology about his life and work. And repentance and response. Here's where we are. He's told us facts. He's told us theology. Now he's saying, are you repentant? You know why we don't repent? You know what the fundamental reason you and I don't repent is? I'll tell you why the reason it is for me. Absolute stiff arming in God's face pride. We think we know better than him. We know we, what we want is better than what he wants. We are ultimately and fundamentally arrogant toward God. But the good news is he's given us his power to crush that pride. The good news is he's given us his word to direct exact pathways into sanctification. Is this the read your Bible more sermon? Yes, of course. How can it be anything but that? How can we know how God breaks the power of cancels sin and sets the prisoner free unless we read what he's done and how he instructs us? A Christian who doesn't read their Bible is not a growing Christian. Pretty simple. So let me say it again. Happy people are holy people. Are you happy? If so, it's because you're pursuing holiness. And if you're not holy, you have no hope of being happy before the Lord. Pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. We'll have more to say even about that verse next time. And we'll take that into the next two verses as well. Let's pray together. With your heads bowed, <clears throat> do, do you know that besetting sin? Do, do, you, do you understand how important it is to pursue that sanctification? Do you care? Do you want to care more? These next, I was going to say verses, these next chapters... They're going to be pretty brutal. (laughs) They're going to be so penetrating to ask us these kinds of questions. But God does this for his glory, but he does it for our good. Without sanctifying grace, we will be miserable. No assurance. Looking all cleaned up on the outside but lost and decaying on the inside. Listen, friends, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to be that way. Paul 
through the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has and will instruct us how to be holy. And when you're holy, you're happy. God doesn't want us to be unhappy, but happiness comes from pleasing him. If you place it on pleasing yourself, you're just going to have to do the next thing to please yourself to stay happy. God's infinite and eternal person and work is ultimately gratifying. If you know the Lord, pursue sanctification. If you don't, we'd love to talk to you. Our prayer room is going to be open in a few minutes and we'd love to talk to you, pray with you, share a burden with you. But there's another group of people and that's the group who have said or thought that they've been saved. I am so terrified. My worst nightmare pastorally is that someone at Mission Road Bible Church will end up as in that group who show up before the Lord in Matthew 7 and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and that and the other in your name? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Please make sure you know him. Father, give us the biblical balance of understanding that our sins are covered, that we can do nothing to earn your favor. And yet that very fact makes us aggressive about becoming holy. Balance those extremes of being licentious or being legalistic with the perfect balance of your word. Settle hearts this morning. Give perspective about ourselves. Oh Lord, sanctify our church. We want to be holy. In Jesus' name, amen.